want to talk to you a little bit about something. I want to talk to you about healing the heart, and, and I guess probably the season is motivating the message quite a bit. You know, obviously, probably every podium and pulpit in America, is, um, including our president, I listened to our president for a few minutes tonight. He was at um, the scene, I'm sorry, I can't even remember, Connecticut, yeah, and he was sharing today. By the way, what I heard of it was very good. He, he was he was talking about he was sharing scriptures and talking about God, and I really like when he does that. I, <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's genuine, honestly. Um, but um, you know, just the the crisis that that we've seen just happen with children, and and this is the second or third one in a couple of weeks. It's just been. Very um, obviously grieving and disturbing. I mean, that's not even, I don't, that doesn't even describe it, does it? It's been watching some of the um, people who've lost children. Oh my goodness. I, actually, I don't even want to imagine what that's like. It's already painful enough without trying to picture it. But um, I wanted to just to share a few things with you. Um, that I'm, I'm learning, I, and um, I, I don't think I'm necessarily like, I don't know that this message is my message in that, that I've learned it. I think sometimes we have messages that we, God gives us, that they're messages that have flown, they flow through us, but they haven't, we're not really embodying the message. And then there's other times where we are the message, and we're just, we're putting to words what, what God has already done in us, you know. I think both were important. But um, in Matthew uh, chapter f- uh, 5, verse 4, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to quote a couple verses, and then we're going to read a passage. <clears throat> um, Jesus said, blessed are, those who, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I wanted to talk just a little bit about the healing of the heart tonight. And um, I have this strong sense that I was going to say in America, but I, I really see it in most first world countries, not as much in third world countries or in developing countries, but it seems like um, that we have an intense fear of pain, that we don't do pain. As a matter of fact, in America, you can live your whole life and not see a dead person. It's like people just disappear from the planet, and, and you, you don't have to go to a funeral and you don't actually, unless something freaky happens, like you come on an accident or, you know, something like that. I mean, you, you could, it's very possible to live your whole life and not ever actually see a dead person. And yet, you know, people are dying every day. And I, I, we're all, we're all going to die someday. I, I'm not trying to be sarcastic or funny. I'm simply saying that, that in America and in most first world countries, we hide our funerals like we, as soon as someone dies, you want to get the funeral over with and get them buried and, and go on. So we don't, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, we don't have 40 days of mourning like the Jewish people do. We don't have, um, you know what I'm, I, I'm, you know, I think you know what I'm trying to articulate. It's like, we don't, we don't, we don't want to face death. We don't want to, we don't want to think about it. And so we do our very best to, and then we embalm people, make them look better when they're dead than they ever looked when they're alive. So it's kind of like, wow, he looks so alive. Well, he, he's not. He's actually dead. 
and actually we're all we're all going to die someday. And and um, I say that just to say that that I don't know that we are always. I'm not sure that we're aware of what our inability to embrace pain has caused us. And so when somebody mourns, when we find someone who mourns, it's, it feels like it's our responsibility to cheer them up. And I'll, I'll bring some balance at the end of the message, because so, some of us are like, you we're not supposed to cheer people up. I'm like, we'll get there in just a minute. I'm saying our first response when somebody's grieving is to like cheer them up, and maybe you're not like that, and I. But but I know that I am, and I wonder sometimes if we're cheering them up for their sake or for ours. And I wonder, you know, I wonder sometimes. I I know that the cycle of wholeness is that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you don't mourn, you don't get comforted. And I think that there's a lot of walking wounded people who've had terrible things happen in their life, maybe in their childhood or, or, or maybe even in their adulthood. Terrible things happen in their life, and they're, in, and, they, and they're submerged in a culture that doesn't do pain. So one of two things that I can think of happens. Either people distance themselves from you when you're in pain. They're like, oh, you're in pain. I don't, I don't do you when you're in pain. I don't do pain, so if you're in pain, I don't want to be with you. Or, if I am with you, I don't want to mourn with you. I want to try to get you out of it, because I don't do pain. I remember um, five years ago or so, four four and a half years ago, I, I really crashed bad, and I've told this story, and actually my son and I wrote a book about it called um, The Supernatural Power of Forgiveness. And, um, you know, my my... This is, you know, all documented. I'm not telling secrets, by the way. Sometimes we share, Danny and I and some of us share stories. And when we share private stories, we've been given permission to do that. So I wouldn't, you know, if you came and told me something private, I wouldn't tell the world. <laughs> Sometimes people are, you know, Danny's sharing a story and they're like, <gasps> I'm like, no, no, he, he has permission to share that story. And so, you know, my son went through a divorce as a pastor here. While on staff, his wife ran off with somebody else, got pregnant, didn't want to reconcile. Long story, but very painful. My daughter had a nervous breakdown two months before that happened. And I just went, I went through the deepest. I, I didn't think I've ever been depressed in my life, which is, I mean, maybe a day or something. It, it's not common to my personality type, let me put it that way. Like depression is not a part of my personality type. Anger? I, I have my vices, but depression isn't one of them. <laughs> and I've been through a lot in my life. And I, you know, it's like I, I, I just I don't think I've ever experienced. I never have experienced deep depression. And um, I, I got depressed. And to tell you the truth, I didn't even know what it was. Like I actually had to have a doctor tell me I was depressed because I didn't want to live. <laughs> I guess that means you're depressed and you don't want to live anymore. <laughs> And um, it's, I, there, a real interesting thing happened to me, which I didn't, I didn't understand. I, I wasn't trying to figure it out anyway. But a lot of my really close friends, they, um, I don't want to use the word abandon, they, did, they, they didn't come around anymore. And it's interesting, the people who did. The people who did and the people who didn't. 
it's it's interesting. I and it, and um and now I look back. It's five years later, and I look back and I think, you know, it wasn't that they didn't love me. It's just that because they couldn't cheer me up, then they didn't know what to do with me, so they isolated me. So sometimes when we can't, you know, like somebody, like this situation what we just have with these kids. I mean, if you ran into a parent that just lost their kid in the shooting, what would you say? You would, anything you would say would be wrong. I mean, you, I mean there are times you just don't say stuff. There are times you just be with people. When I was going through, when I was, when I was crashed and, you know, I was just, I would ask the same question about every half hour. I just stuck in a loop of hopelessness. And, you know, it's really hard to be around people who are completely hopeless and who don't feel like anything's ever going to change. And you say to them, you know, this is going to pass. It's going to, people would say to me all the time, this is going to pass. It's going to be okay. And I would gain hope for about, they would last maybe 15 minutes to a half an hour. And then I need someone to tell me again. I mean, honestly, like I couldn't hold on to it for longer than a half an hour. But I longed for people to tell me it's going to be okay. As crazy as it sounds. And I had, um, Two people or three people in my life who they're, they're friends, like I would say they were friends. But um, I didn't know them very well. But when they found out that I, I was in trouble, one of them called me every day. One of them called me every day. One of them called me one time. I was 3 o'clock in the morning. I, was, I couldn't sleep. It's 3 o'clock in the morning, and I get a call from this guy. And he said, I just was praying for you. Uh, were you awake? I'm like, yeah. I wouldn't answer the phone. He's like, I just was call, just, just telling you, it's going to be okay. And that guy called me every day. I had another guy call me three or four times a week. Just call me. And I don't even know, like, I would be thinking, like, he would say, how you're doing? And I was never doing good. For six months, I didn't have a good day. I'd say, I'm doing terrible. I'm doing horrible. You know, my some of my very closest friends, and by the way, Danny was amazing rescued me and my family and stepped right into my pain but some of my very closest friends i you know one of them i I think of one of them right now is how you're doing i'm like i'm doing horrible that was the last conversation we had until i wasn't doing horrible and and it wasn't anything about them not not loving me it was them not knowing how to fix me so therefore i can't be with you and and i think that I think it's important that we realize that there are seasons for people to grieve. That grief has a cycle. I know this is a great message, isn't it? Everyone's so cheery. <laughs> and um, do I, turn to John. What, it's going to be okay. <laughs> it's really the word of the Lord, though, and it'll it, it should end better. John 11. I, I want you just to turn to John 11 for a minute. I know, we don't even like messages like this. We're like, I, I wish I didn't come tonight. <laughs> Jesus, um, I shared this um, a couple of, a Sunday ago or two, uh, when I was talking about um, women, empowering women. But um, I, this scene has been, I, I wrote this scene out. This is the scene, um, let me just tell you about the scene. Um, Jesus hears that Lazarus, his friend, Lazarus has 
Jesus has three close friends that we know of that weren't part of the disciples. There might have been more, but I bet the Bible records Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And obviously they're brother, they're all brother and sisters. And so, and it says that when Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, he waits two more days to go see Lazarus. And when he gets, and when, so he's, it's a two, it's a two day journey, but Jesus doesn't get there for four days. And when Martha hears that Jesus is on the way, she runs out to meet him. I don't know, a mile or two, but she meets him outside the village. And she says to Jesus, Martha, this is Martha, this is typical Martha. She said, if my brother, if, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, Martha is, she is the typical A personality. You always know where you stand with Martha. Totally confrontive. And Martha is not crying. Note, Martha is not weeping. And she tells Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would, my brother would not have died. Uh, the connotation is, I called for you four days ago. <laughs> it's a two-day journey. Where the heck have you been? But she says to him, but even now, I know that whatever you ask God, he'll give to you. In other words, you can fix this. I'm pretty mad about this, but you can fix this. And, um, and that's Martha all through the Bible. I just, I just love, I relate to her better, actually. <laughs> I, it gives me permission to be confrontive. <laughs> you know, when Martha and Mary, when Jesus meets them at, at their house for the first time, comes to the house, we don't know if it's the first time, it seems like it is though, Mary's at Martha, I'm, Mary's at Jesus' feet and Martha's working in the kitchen, remember this, this whole scene? And Mary, I mean, Martha comes out to Jesus and says to, to Jesus, is, would you tell my sister to help me? I'm doing all the work. You remember this? I love Martha. She's like, the Lord's at your house. And you're like, this is what I'm really mad about. My sister, I have a problem with my sister. Are you going to do something about it? Because right now it seems like you're participating in her dysfunction. <laughs> But the part that I love is that Mary, Mary comes to, when she hears that Jesus is, actually, actually the way she hears that Jesus is on his way is that Martha goes and gets her and says, the teacher is coming. The teacher, not the master, the teacher. You know, men didn't teach women, so it's, it's pretty powerful, but we're talking about something else right now. The teacher is here and he's asking for you. And when Mary comes, she, she throws herself at Jesus' feet and she's weeping. That's, that's a chick flick right there. I don't do that very well. Like, I don't, I don't do that. And what's really cool, Jesus, when Jesus talks to Martha, he talks to her about the theology of the resurrection. And he said, Mary, he says to Martha, Martha, do you know that you that I am the resurrection of life? And she says, I know that you are, but my brother's dead. And he says, well, even if he's dead, he shall rise again. And he interacts with her on her level. But when he gets to Mary, he doesn't talk to Mary about theology at all. It says, when Jesus saw Mary and the others weeping, it says, Jesus wept. You know, I've come to understand something. The other day I was just writing about this whole incident, and I was picturing it, and I don't want to say I was taken back there, but I just could feel 
Mary's pain. Now, think about this. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus in about five minutes. Like five minutes from now, he's going to raise Lazarus. And he knows he's going to because he tells the disciples, Lazarus is sick. And they're like, oh, okay, well, he'll get well. He goes, no, no, he's going to die. He's going to die specifically because I'm going to wait till he's dead before I go. And so he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus because four days before he already tells his disciples he's going to die. I'm going to raise him from the dead. It's going to be for the glory of God. But when he gets around all these that we know about women who are weeping and he knows instead of going, hey, stop it. Knock it off. Okay. You know who's here? The resurrection and the life. I am about to perform a miracle. I wish you'd stop. You're messing with my faith. You, you mourners, you're messing with my faith here. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. I came late on. T- Listen, Martha, cool it. You know, I, I'm doing a resurrection thing here. It, instead, it says he wept, that Jesus wept. And he's, as he's making his way towards the tomb and he encounters a crowd of people weeping, it says, and being deeply grieved with compassion. Deeply grieved with compassion, he says to Lazarus, come forth. I don't know if I'm making too big of a deal out this, except for this. Jesus isn't afraid of pain. Jesus doesn't try to get people out of pain. Jesus knows how to weep with people who weep. He knows how to connect with people at whatever level. Mary, Martha, Martha's got a, a theological problem with the fact that Jesus, and, and, and a friendship problem. She's like, hey, you know, you're all powerful. I called for you four days ago. You take your sweet time to get here. That's a problem to me. And Jesus is not offended by her aggressive nature and her being angry with him. But he also knows how to enter in, if you will, to the emotional side of life and not have to make, a, he doesn't have to reason with people. He reasons with Martha because she wants to reason. He doesn't reason with Mary because she's not looking for a reason. She's looking. She's, she's broken because her, her, her brother's dead. He's not mad at anybody. She's just hurt that he's gone. I think it's important for us to just be able to, you really want to be a great minister, discern the atmosphere. Sometimes we're asking questions, we're answering questions no one's asking. Sometimes we're, we're just so afraid of pain, we're like, we're trying to just figure out like some way to get people out of the pain. Listen, what would you do if you met someone in pain and, you're, and, and you didn't feel like it was your responsibility to get them out of the pain? What would you do? Probably from there, it's a great platform to, for the Holy Spirit to actually use you. <laughs> in um, Romans twelve fifteen, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and, and weep with those who weep. Um, this is a little side note, but sometimes it's harder to rejoice with people who rejoice than it is to re- weep with people who weep. You know why? Because we're jealous of why people are rejoicing. <laughs> sometimes people are rejoicing because they got the new car, they got the new house, they got the job, they got the person healed, they got the, and they got the exact thing that you want. And, you, and, on the, and, and actually, you don't rejoice because you're jealous of them. 
And how many of you understand, until you can rejoice with someone who's rejoicing, you don't get to rejoice, you don't get to have your private rejoice until you can rejoice with someone else. I, I want to tell you, you know, I, you know, I don't have the answer of why people shoot people that, you know, Bill said today, you know, he's just like, you know, there, there is no rationale for crazy people. There is no rationale for someone demonized. Some, you know, like, okay, why did someone do this? Well, I would say it's not rational. But I will say this. An open door, a huge open door in our life to all kinds of crazy stuff is jealousy. I want to read you this. I want to read you a verse. It's in James um, chapter 3. Listen to this, it's, um, I think it's verse, it's verse 14, but we'll start from verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show his good behavior and his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and lie against the truth. Uh, he's saying right there, if you're jealous or bitter, don't pretend like you're not. Like, the best thing you can do is be real with God. He's saying, if you're bitter and jealous, don't call it something else. I can't tell you how many times in counseling sessions, and I'm sure Danny and all of us have done counseling, that somebody comes into my office and they go, I'm frustrated with so-and-so. No, actually, you're bitter. Actually, you're unforgiving. Actually, if you would have named it the right name, you wouldn't have to be in my office because you could have fixed it. But because you called it by a name that's a friend, you let it be in your life. And so he's saying, if you have bitterness or selfish ambition or jealousy in your life, don't lie against the truth. In other words, just say, I am jealous. It's the beginning. The beginning of solving a problem is actually admitting what, you know, I'm telling you, Christians are the worst. I'm serious. You know, I worked in the business world for 20 years. And people, you know, I, I had lots of customers who were, they were my flock. And they would come in and they go, I hate my wife. A Christian never says that. A Christian's like, I'm so frustrated with my wife. No, no, you hate her. Well, no, brother, you know, hate is not from God. I know. That's what's killing you. <laughs> That you called it something else and you let it in. It took on another identity, but it's killing you. But I love working with non-Christians. They're like, I hate her. I'd kill her if it wasn't illegal. You're like, okay, it sounds like you have anger. <laughs> oh, no, brother, I'm frustrated. No, you're not frustrated. You're unforgiving, you're bitter, and you're hateful. Oh. Is that what I'm feeling? Yeah. That's why rage keeps coming up. And so, listen to this though. If you're bitter and jealous, I'm sorry, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant. And so lie against the truth. Don't be arrogant. Don't say, no, I'm too spiritual for that. You know? No, no, there's nobody too spiritual for that. And this is what he says. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, listen to this, there is disorder and every evil thing. There is disorder and every evil thing. Let me read you Galatians. This is, 
This will really get you down. <laughs> we're going to be all right. We're, we're not afraid of pain. For the, um, it's uh, Galatians 5. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Now, I want to back up. Did you see verse 19? Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. The deeds of the what? Flesh. They're, they're idolatry, immorality, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this, which I forewarned you. Isn't it interesting that sorcery is mentioned Sorcery is mentioned as a fruit of the flesh. And here's what I'm getting at. In James, he says that if you are jealous, that it opens the door for every evil thing. And Paul says in Galatians that the fruit, the fruit of the flesh is jealousy and sorcery. And in 1 Samuel chapter 18, we have the story of David coming, uh, David and, and uh, actually it's Saul's men coming back from battle from killing Goliath. And the women are lying in the streets, and you know the story. And their women are singing. They're singing, Saul has killed his thousands, and David killed his ten thousands. I, I actually don't think in the context that they are demeaning Saul at all. They're thinking of Saul as a father who's proud of his son, and they don't think the song is a bad song. But Saul, it says that Saul was jealous that day. Saul was suspicious that day. And the next verse says, and an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. And what I'm getting at is this, is that sometimes I'm convinced that insanity, sorcery, murder, all kinds of evil, every sort of evil, sometimes I'm convinced that it's rooted in jealousy. I'm thinking of the very first murder that ever happened in the Bible. You know, there was four people on the planet, and the murder rate was 25%. It's when Cain killed Abel. Do you remember that? And do you remember why Cain killed Abel? Because it says that God received Cain's offering. No, it says that God received Cain. No, start over. God received Abel and his offering. But for Cain, he had no regard or for his offering. And when Cain, so Cain becomes jealous, he's jealous that Abel has a relationship with God, and he doesn't. And God finds Cain in the field, because Cain is angry. And God says to Cain this, If you do good, will not your countenance be lifted up? In plain English, if you do good, won't your attitude change? God's saying to him, you know why I received Abel? You know why I receive Abel? Because Abel does good. Abel, Abel likes me. But you, Cain, you don't. And if you, you, you want to change, your problem is not Abel. Cain, your problem is not Abel. Your problem is you. Your problem is that you don't make sacrifices to bless me and others. And I'm convinced that oftentimes when the favor of God is on somebody, that it creates jealousy with other people. 
And if you don't weed your garden, Proverbs says it this way, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. I'm convinced, I don't know anything about, if I could, I know that the context that I began with in, is, is this, this shooting, which is terrible, and I don't know the circumstances there. So, so I don't want to superimpose this message over that. But I've known enough violence in my life and been involved with people who have murdered people and done horrible things. And I can't tell you how many times that when you, you know, when you, you start getting past the fruit and you follow the branches down all the way to the root, it began with jealousy. Like jealousy is an evil monster that opens the door to sorcery and all kinds of evil spirits in your life. And in my life. I've struggled with jealousy my whole life. My entire life. It is, you know, I, I, I don't, I want to, I mean, some, some, I, I don't say this like we all sin. So I, I want you to know, like, I, I'm not saying we all sin. I mean, some, some people struggle with pornography. Some people struggle with depression. Um, that, besides a season in my life of depression and, uh, and pornography when I was a young boy, a teenage boy, I, that, that's, I'm not saying I've never, I've never had a struggle with it ever, but I mean, it's not my life. It's not my life. It's not, it's not my, it's not my demon of choice. But jealousy, I don't choose any demons actually. You know what I'm saying. It's definitely not the low wall in my life. Those things are not the low wall in my life. But jealousy has been an issue in my life. I don't know, since I can remember. Since I can remember. And, and, and looking at what someone else has, it's like, you, you ever watch kids play? Maybe your kids are like all, like they knew Jesus from in the womb or something. John the Baptist. I can remember my kids playing, and whatever kid, whatever, whatever the oldest has, whatever toy the oldest has, the other two want. And so, you know, Jamie, my oldest daughter, Jamie's really giving. So, you know, she would have this toy, and and you know, and Shannon would be like, "I want that toy," and Jamie would just give it to her, and she'd play with something else, and whatever else she was playing with, then she want that toy. That's my life. God's been great to me, but. I'm, but the temptation is to look over the wall and see what someone else has. And to forget how, God, how good God has been to you. And be like, I want that now. I, I liked what I had until I saw what you got. Now I want what you got. And I, I, think it's, I think it's really important for us. Maybe yours isn't jealousy, whatever. But to guard our hearts. I'm convinced that, you know, I, I, and again, I don't know the circumstances, but... I'm convinced that sometimes people like this circumstance. People are, you know, mom loves these children and doesn't love me. And that doesn't have to be true. It can just feel that way. And when I let that, when I don't deal with my heart, when I lie about what I'm really feeling, that thing gets to grow. It gets, it gets, it's like mold. It gets to grow in this dark corner and it starts to take over the building. Mold starts to take over my building. Are you, are you with me? And, and um, Jesus talked about, he, he said, if you have unforgiveness for somebody, he talked and he said, that, I forget how he put it, but he talked about it being like murder. 
I'm convinced that most murder comes from jealousy. I mean, it begins there, like way down at the roots. It's like, I'm jealous that you gave someone else attention. I'm jealous that someone else has something I want. I'm jealous that they're favored and I'm not. I'm jealous that they they have money and I don't. It's amazing in our culture how jealousy works itself into the political system even. How if somebody has money, we're convinced they got it illegally. They did something wrong to get it. Why? How do you know that? Because I don't have it. So they must have done something evil to get it. And they deserve, listen, if you, if you have, if you're wealthy, you did something wrong. And you deserve to be taxed for it more than me. And, you know, I understand that's a political statement, but it, but so many, so much of our policies that we create in our own life, whether they're governmental or whatever, actually are rooted in jealousy. They're actually rooted in, you know, you have money and I don't, and I don't like you for it. Why don't you like me? I don't, I don't know. You must have done something wrong to be successful. In, um, Psalms, how are we doing for time? I don't know. In Psalms 30, verse 5. You know, if you have really happy messages, you can go long. <laughs> if you have painful messages, they should be short. <laughs> it feels like I'm sawing your fingers off, like, one by one. <laughs> this is a message like, okay, give me your next one. Ah! <laughs> Weeping, Psalms 30, verse 5. Weeping may endure through the night, but joy comes with a shout in the morning. Weeping may endure through the night. I've come to realize that the night isn't necessarily eight hours. That sometimes the night means a season. Sometimes the night means a season. Like, weeping endures through the night, so it's like, okay, listen, you had something terrible happen to you, you got 24 hours to get happy. It's like, no, no, that doesn't work either. So, so sometimes night is, is metaphoric for a season. And in Psalms 126, it's, um, it says, um, it says, well, in fact, I'm sorry. In Psalms 126, Verse 4, restore our captivity, O God, as the streams of the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. I want to read you one more passage that I thought goes along with this. Um, It's Psalms 84, verse 5 through 7. In fact, let me just read that to you. Psalms 84. Verse 5 says, How blessed is the man whose strength is in, is in you, and whose heart are the ways, highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, and Baca means weeping, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessing. They go from strength to strength, everyone who peers before God in Zion. <coughs> I'd like to propose to you that he talks about this person who is 
weeping while they're spreading their seed. And of, of course, it's he's talking about, I mean, not metaphorically speaking, but he's talking about somebody who is he's spreading seed that they actually need to eat. Like they have children at home and they they don't have enough food. And so they but they know that if they don't spread the seed, if they eat the seed instead of spread the seed, there'll be no crop for the next year. And then, and then, well, and then, this, in other words, the, poverty, the cycle of poverty will increase instead of decrease. So they're spreading their seed with tears, knowing that their children are at home hungry, but they're spreading, so they're spreading seed they need to eat, but if they don't plant it, then they create a cycle of poverty. In Psalms 84, he says, they make the valley of Baca becomes a spring. The valley of Baca is the valley of weeping. It becomes a spring, and it takes you from strength to strength. I'm convinced that grieving actually has a purpose in our life. And that if we will, if we will watch over our hearts during times of grieving, that it will actually take us from strength to strength, and it will actually, actually be what waters the seed in our life. In other words, I'm not saying like, Okay, let's just be martyrs and pray something terrible happens so that something amazing will happen. You know, people. Are, I, I hear people say things like, we have to prepare for the Great Tribulation. That is stupid. You don't have to prepare for the Great Tribulation. In, in, in the world, you have tribulation. You don't have to look for it. It finds you. How many of you figured that out? Like, you know, if you're past 18, you should know this. Unless you grew up in a sheltered home. I mean, it's like, you don't have to prepare for tribulation. Tribulation has a way of finding you. How many of you figured that out? You know, the, the, you know, the 12 gates into the, into the holy city, Jerusalem, in the book of Revelation, are made of what? Pearls, which are... And, and Jesus said, through many tribulations will you enter the kingdom. Pearls are created through irritation. Through tribulation. Are you with me? So, you know, you don't have to prepare for a great tribulation. It'll come looking for you. You don't need, like, I think I'm going to go to the school of tribulation. No, you don't have to go to the school of tribulation. Or in the school of tribulation, things will happen to you. And you're like, you're prophesying bad. I'm just saying, no, no. When you go through these things, why not let them have a purpose in your life that, so that you can come back with joyful shouting, bringing your sheaves? Are you with me? And I noticed that for the first time tonight, I noticed he doesn't say, I thought it said that he turns the, uh, the Valley of Baca into a stream. I, I was Googling, I was not Googling, I was on my computer program, I was Googling stream. But it's spring. You know the difference between a stream and a spring? A spring is something that comes out of the ground. It's something that comes out, you're getting, she's throwing seed on the ground. And, and something happens when you, when you choose to grieve without being jealous or bitter. And let me tell you, the worst thing you can do when you're hurting is ask why. Huh? You want to you want to take about you want to go around the mountain 40 years instead of 40 days? Just tell God you have to know why this happened. And I'll tell you something: when you come up with an answer when you're in pain, it won't be the right answer anyway. It'll be the answer it'll be the answer you need to either justify your bitterness or to hold you in this place. What you, what we need, what you need, what I need, when I need it, when my son crashed. I mean, why is it, like, why? Why did this happen? Maybe I did something wrong. I could tell you, I, I was in that loop for three months. Danny helped me out of that loop. What did I do wrong? 
this woman, I, I approved this woman. This, they were young when they met. I, I said, okay, I said I liked her. I gave them approval. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, man, I, mean, I didn't raise my son right. Maybe there's something I did wrong. I mean, you could get in that loop. I can tell you, you try to figure out why, you'll be stuck for another year. And I'd be in Danny's office, and he, and I'd be like, "Why?" And he'd be telling me like, <laughs> "You know what? This is not. This is not going to get you where you need to go. <laughs> Just grieve. <laughs> Just grieve. Don't try to figure it out right now. And you know, when you get out of the pain, and, and you know, you may not be able to figure out when you get it out when you get out of the pain." Let's face it, you know, some things are mysteries that you just get, when you get to heaven, you get to ask God, why did that happen? Or maybe when you get there, you're like, this is exact, oh, this all makes sense from eternity. You know, uh, Solomon said that. He said, God has put eternity in our hearts, without which no one knows the ways of God. From eternity, everything makes sense. <laughs> from this side, it doesn't make too much sense. Lots of things don't make sense. And, 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 and sometimes... We just get stuck trying to figure out why something happened. Why that person died prematurely. Why did, why did crazy things happen? Or why did, why did I, why did my business fail? I put all this work into my business. I, I did everything I needed to do and my business failed. It's like, why? Well, you know, there, there are good, there are good, there's good that can come out of your failure by learning what you did wrong. I want, I want to acknowledge that, and I want, to, I want you to know I get that. But not when you're in pain. Because when you're in pain, you typically get out of pain by blaming somebody else. And that's where bitterness comes from. I hated my son's wife. I hated her. I took my pain and I pointed it at a person. You were evil. You destroyed my family. I mean, it's not helpful. It doesn't make it any better. It's not going to fix it. It's not going to fix it. You're like, well, it could be true. It could be true, but it's not going to fix it. It's going to take me deeper into depression, discouragement, a sense of powerlessness, bitterness, hatred. And the worst thing it's going to do, it's going to open up. It's going to open me up to the demonic realm. And they, they... Uh, they, evil spirits, they are going to torment me. You know, I, I, I hope this comes across the way I mean it. I, I, I sincerely mean this in a compassionate way. When, uh, when a woman gets raped, as a, for instance, terrible thing, the worst thing about a rape oftentimes is not the incident it's the hatred and bitterness that opens a door to a life of feeling victimized and being hatred and, and being full of hatred. See, I'm convinced that the enemy is more concerned about our response than he is about the act. Because, see, I mean, you know, it, and I understand, I understand that, you know, I've worked with women who have been raped and all. I understand that, you know, that is a tragedy. I'm not trying to play that down. I'm just saying the enemy would love to get a lifetime. Life, he'd like to get a lifetime, life investment out of, out of that two-hour tragedy or that whatever, however long. I'm not trying to make light of it. He would like to make this a lifestyle. He'd like you to enter into a lifestyle of hatred and bitterness. Are you with me? 
And, and, the, and the thing is, is that it feels like I have a right to be bitter. I have a right. You did this to my family. You did this to me. I'm a victim. I didn't do anything wrong. It's all true. You know, you don't have to trust people, but you have to forgive. Sometimes uh, I'm getting, I'm almost done. Sometimes people get stuck in their grief. They get stuck. So I want to share the other side now, this just for a few minutes. Like I said, our job isn't to cheer people up, unless it is. Sometimes people lay down in the valley of the shadow of death instead of walk. You know, we're supposed to lay down by the still waters, lay down by the, the stream. But when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, you're just supposed to keep walking. Like, what do I do? Keep walking. How long? <laughs> Till you get out of it. <laughs> Till you get through it. Like, you know, uh, I think the um, AA says, you know, one day at a time. It's just like, just sometimes all you can do is put one foot in front of the other. And it's like, I don't know how long this journey is, but I know the highway's there. It might be 50 miles, it might be 100 miles away, but I know it's north, and if I keep walking, I'm going to get there. But if I don't walk, I'm not going to get there. And so sometimes people lie down in the valley of the shadow of death. And sometimes it is, it is right to come in and go, um, listen, weeping endures through the night, this has been like a lifestyle. <laughs> like this is turning into a lifestyle. I was thinking about um, Abraham. God said to Abraham when he was Abram and Sarai, leave the Chaldeans to the place I will show you. Leave your father's house to the place I will show you. In fact, God said to him, don't take anybody with you. But he didn't listen, and he took his father and his brother with him. His brother's name was Haran. His older brother, his name was Haran. And along the way, they didn't know where they were going, but they just knew where they couldn't stay. And by the way, I think a lot of us are there. God gives us a prophetic word. Sometimes we don't know where we're going. We just know we can't stay. And so here they are. They're going to a place God will show them. They don't know where that's at. And, they're, and he has his father and he has his brother and he has Sarai with them. And they're, they're going along the way. And along the way, Haran dies. His brother, Haran, dies. And they get to a city, Abraham. Now he's got his, Abraham, his father, which I don't remember his name. I think it's Terai and Sarah. And when his father, Abraham's father, gets to the city named Haran, remember he had a son named Haran who died, it says that he refused to go on. He refused to go on. Sometimes we get stuck in our pain. We make a monument out of our pain. And it stops our movement. Are you with me? We can't get past Haran. And what the Bible says that that um, Abraham's father, Abraham had to wait until his father died because his father refused to leave Haran. There are times when people get stuck in their pain. There is a time for you to say to somebody, get up, (laughs) get dressed, we're going to the movie. 
or whatever. I don't feel like going to the movie. I know, that's why you need to go. Listen, you are stuck. You've been doing this for six months. Get up. Your wife who passed on would want you to get up. You are not dishonoring her. I can't tell you how many times in a, in a death, of a, especially of a spouse, I'd be like, your wife is in heaven having a good time. You are down here acting like she's not having fun. She's having fun. You're the one who's miserable. And she is cheering for you to get up. You are not dishonoring her. It feels like if I go out and have fun, it feels like I don't really, I, I'm not really mourning her death. No, no, you've done that for six years. You can get up now. It's okay. Get up. We're going to the movies. And there are times when we're sensitive to the spirit. There are times, not because we're afraid of pain, but because someone's got stuck in Iran. To say, you're leaving this city if I had to carry your butt out. Do you hear me? We are going on with God. Okay? You're getting in the wagon. We are going. We are not staying here because you can't get over my brother's death. You are going with us. And there are times in life when it is someone needs a good kick in the butt. They don't need it the day after their child died. They don't need it the day after they had a crisis. They don't need you to be afraid of pain. They need, they, and listen, when you've wept with somebody, you have permission to say, get off the couch. You've been there for six months. Okay? Your son is going to live again. Your grandchildren are going to be okay. But they don't need you on the couch. Okay, you've worn for six months. Get off that couch and start to live again. Is, there is seasons. There are. There is a time if if we if we can weep with people. I think I think if we can get in the pain with people, then we can sense when it's supposed to be over. I honestly, I, I don't mean to over spiritualize this, but I think when you are in someone's pain, at some point you go, okay, this has gone on long enough. Listen, the 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 process is blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You you will not let anybody comfort you, and it's time. And you know, and I don't know all the reasons why people get stuck. You know, I don't know. Sometimes it can be bitterness. Sometimes whatever. So, sometimes you have to say to somebody, you got to stop feeling sorry for yourself. You know, I remember I went through a season of, of grief, not depression, but grief. And I, I, I went to the, the, the children's hospital and walked the halls. And I realized something, that I was grieving because I was feeling sorry for myself. And I walked the halls of the cancer ward at the children's hospital and it took me right out of it. And I'm like, dude, what is your problem? And I remember just sitting with somebody that was in the waiting room at the cancer ward at the children's hospital in Reading. I just remember just going in there as a stranger. I'm like, I need to get myself out of this thing. And I, I felt like, I never told this story. I felt like the Holy Spirit said, I want you to go to the cancer ward. I didn't you know, that's the last place I went. I'm already feeling bad. No, no, you need to realize, you don't have it off. You don't have the, you, you, your situation is not that bad. Go comfort someone who has a real situation. I get done hearing their story. I ain't feeling fine. I mean, not about them. But I'm like, oh. 
I walked out of there feeling like a complete idiot for feeling bad about my circumstances. You know, what? I remember all the years I was growing up, my, we grew up poor. My mother used to have us pray. My mother wasn't a Christian. But every night we prayed the same prayer. We prayed the Lord's Prayer, kind of. I don't think my mom actually knew it. because To this day, I don't have it memorized, so it must have not been exactly right. <laughs> And she used to say things like, God helps those who help themselves. I was shocked when I couldn't find that in the Bible. <laughs> so he had these little one-liners that she thought they were in the Bible. But every night we pray for people who are less fortunate than us. Lord, we just pray for people who are less fortunate. <laughs> the problem is I didn't know anybody who was less fortunate than me. I realized it was my mom's Jedi mind trick she was playing on me every night. Like, There are actually people who are less fortunate than you. You know, I had two rageaholic fathers. My, my, my first father drowned when I was three years old. I had two rageaholic fathers. We were poor. You know, my mom was getting beaten all the time. I was, you know, my sister was getting beat up. And my mom was having us pray for people who are less fortunate than us. I realize now that's probably the reason why it wasn't bitter as a kid. Because my mom told me there's people who are worse off. I didn't know any. <laughs> <laughs> but my mom must have knew some of them because we were praying for them all the time. And like now I'm like, I know now she was doing the Danny Silk thing on me. <clears throat> she didn't even know Danny Silk, but she was doing the Danny Silk. That she was convincing me that there were people who were worse off than us. In psychology today, this is like 30 years old, they asked a, a leading psychologist, they said, what would you do if somebody was, if someone felt like they were having a nervous breakdown? He said, I'd tell them to go find someone who's worse off than them and serve them. That's great counsel. I mean, having been there, that's great counsel. What do you need to do when you're crashed? Get your mind off yourself and go help someone. The problem is, when you're crashed, you don't feel like there is anybody else worse off than you. But the, I, the, get, being exposed to people who are in a worse place than you, it, I think a, a spring starts to come up of thankfulness. I think you're like that. Ah, if, if, even, if there is, even if they're not worse off than you, the fact that there are other people in pain, the fact that other people... Understand what it's like to be in pain. What you find when you walk the children's hospital is there's camaraderie among the parents that have their children there. They, they build a common bond. There's something about being in battle with, not with one, you know, not against one another, but being in battle with one another as comrades that you build a lifetime bond. And so tonight, I just, I, I really, my, my message is really simple. It's like weep with people who weep. We, we know we do this joy thing all the time. The joy of the Lord is our strength. All that stuff. So this is like, I wouldn't want this message every week. I, 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 this is not our constant diet. This is not our culture. But, but I think it's important in, in this culture of we have such a high value for joy. Boy, do I not want to lose that. But I think once in a while we see something like this and we're like, they just need the joy of the Lord. I, I, I wonder why Jesus wept. It's a statement. Jesus wept is a statement. It's not a statement that he's hopeless. It's a statement that he knows how to connect with people who are hurting. And I just feel like if we're going to be Jesus to 
a dying world, to a, a world in trouble? Sometimes the answer is just to shut up and hold somebody. Sometimes, I'll, I'm, you know, I, I think guys, maybe, maybe I feel like guys are worse at this. It's like, I feel like when I go into a hospital, I need to have an answer. I don't know if women are wired like that, but I feel like, okay, I can't really go there if I don't have an answer. Sometimes you are the answer. When I was crashed, I, I was on, on the couch for six months, and I, I wasn't anywhere as close to normal for a year. Honestly, what I needed more than anyone else, anything else, is for people just to agree with me. I just needed to know people were there. And I would ask the same questions, rotate the same questions over and over, and there, there was no answer. There was no right answer. And, you know, and, and people got around me, and they just reassured me. This one thing reassured me more than anything. This will end. You will live again. And I would need to hear that 10 or 20 times a day. This is going to be over. This will end. How do you know? I just know it will. That doesn't feel like an answer. But I can tell you from someone who's, who's been there, that's a great answer. I feel, feel, looking back, I feel so bad for my friends who would call me every day. How you doing? Man, I suck. I'm terrible. I feel like I want to die. Well, it's really good talking to you. You know, I'm praying for you. I want you to know that. I'm praying for you. It's going to be okay. My doctor called me every day, including Sundays. Every day. How are you? I'm not doing good. It's going to be okay. Man. How do people get through stuff without friends? How do you get how do you get through stuff when your friends are afraid of pain? When your closest friends think they're supposed to cheer you up or they don't have the answer so they want to be near you. I just I just want to commission you as agents of hope. And and oftentimes hope comes from just being present. Hope comes from just being present. I don't mean only, but sometimes hope comes from just being present. If you are going through a really dark time in your life, I'd like you to stand. Like you're just going through a tough season. I'd just like you to stand. I just told you about mine, so I, I think I've been very honest with you. You're going through a really tough season. I want the rest of you, I want you just to gather around them. Just gather around them. Okay, this is your job right here. You don't have to have an answer. You don't have to cheer them up. All I want you to do is is give them hope. Just give them hope. Just, just love on them. Like, I'm not sure what to do. If you'll, if you'll just enter into their pain with them, 
you, you might just, you know, those of you that are getting prayed for, you might, you might just say it's a relationship issue or it's a financial issue or it's a, it's a physical issue or whatever. You might, you don't have to reveal, you know, all the circumstances. I mean, privacy might be important in the situation, but if they, if they have some idea what they're praying for, that, that would be helpful. It might just be like an internal issue, like I'm not sure what's wrong, I just feel stuck. Whatever, just, just pray for them right now. Just pray for them, speak life over them, hug on them. Don't be afraid to talk to them. It's okay to, it's okay to say something to them. It's okay to ask them, is there anything specific you want me to pray for? And if those of you who are getting prayed for, it's okay for you to say no. Just, just pray for me. It's good. Feel free to just speak into their, their soul, to speak into their life. If, if you have something you want to share with them, I, I, not at all trying to keep you from, you know, you may be in the name of, I don't want to cheer them up. You're like, I'm not giving them anything. No, I, I'm, I'm good with you. Just, if God gives you something for them, just give it to them. It might be something they, a word they just hang on to through this season. It's, it's all good. Some of you have had to be strong for other people. Some of you that are being prayed for, you're, you've had to be strong for other people, and you've not had, not been able to grieve because, because you were keeping the family together or keeping the situation together. You've come here now, and you're like, you maybe it's been years, and you've never ever grieved. And God's just opening the floodgates and springs. The valley of Baca, the valley of weeping is turning into a spring. And you're moving from strength to strength. And you've just never had the opportunity to actually weep over your issue because you had to be strong for other people around you to get through the circumstance. God's breaking off a spirit of abandonment. Abandonment and betrayal, those two words, I see them floating in the air. Abandonment and betrayal. We break the power of abandonment over people. We break the power of betrayal. Someone abandons you or they betray you, sometimes it becomes an identity. There must be something wrong with me. Some of you are abandoned even as children and you blame yourself. God, we just break that off of people right here. Right now, right here, maybe your spouse left you and it's like, there's something wrong with me. I, I'm not lovable. No, that's a lie. That's not true. That's not true. God, we just pray for new identities. New identities. Real identities. God, we just pray for that right now. God's given you beauty for ashes. Listen, you never were ashes, but you thought you were. And God's given you beauty. God would say, you're a handsome man. You're a beautiful woman. Thank you, God. Some of you made serious mistakes and, and you caused a lot of people pain. And it's, it's time for you to forgive yourself. Jesus forgave you a long, long time ago. And you just need to forgive yourself. You just need to say, I was wrong. Like the, the passage in James, which is saying it much harsher than I mean it, but don't, don't lie against the truth. Just, I was wrong. 
I, I did, I was wrong. I caused that. And I thank Jesus that he's bigger than any mistake that you can make. He's greater than any sin you committed. Thank you, Lord.